Welcome to Deep Breath In, the podcast from the BMJ, sponsored by Medical Protection, where we tackle the everyday challenges of being a GP. In today's episode, we're talking about two hot topics, post-vaccine headaches and how to safely assess for cerebral venous sinus thrombosis in primary care, and how to address inequity in vaccination uptake, which has been dealt a further blow by the recent concerns over blood clots. I'm Tom Nolan, GP in London and clinical editor for the BMJ. And joining me as usual, uh, we have uh, Navjoit. Hi, Navjoit. Hi, I'm Navjoit Larder, Head of Education at the BMJ and um, a locum GP in London. And just back, just had your second dose? Just fresh back, like just an hour ago from my second dose of the Pfizer vaccine. So Pfizer um, vaccine. hopefully no headaches. So no headaches, but... But possibly, if you if you develop anaphylaxis, we'll we'll call nine nine nine. Thank you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, I get a bit wheezy. Yeah. Uh, and Jenny, how, how are you? Hi, uh, I'm well. I'm Jenny Rasanathan. I'm a family medicine doctor and clinical editor for the BMJ. And don't have to worry too much about vaccines because you're in New Zealand. <laughs> well, it well it is true that we are currently doing well in our COVID response. Um, vaccination has started here. And um, okay. uh, not to be outdone by Australia, New Zealand has launched a website where you can enter some personal data and find out exactly roughly when you'll be getting the vaccine as well. So I think my yeah. spot is coming up in July, which does feel very long away. But um, hmm. yeah, we're, we're doing okay. We just need to hold on to them. So for today's episode, we're, I guess, going for a slightly different format in that we've, you know, we're looking at the two two hot topics or two things that have been in the news a lot uh, in the last couple of weeks, uh, in the UK at least, but I think globally. Um, The first uh, is about headaches after vaccination, in particular, the cerebral venous sinus thrombosis. Uh, And then the second is, um, you know, coming back to a theme we we do try to talk about, um, often in the podcast, which is structural racism and uh, as applied to uh, vaccination uptake and talking to um, to an expert on that uh, as well. And we've, of course, had the Sewell report uh, published in, in the last couple of weeks. Uh, but I thought we should, we'd start with the headaches. Uh, I guess on a day-to-day basis, this is causing a big headache. Uh, even the last couple of days since the, 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 the announcement um, by the, the JC. About uh, not recommending the AstraZeneca vaccine for, for under thirties uh, for the time being, um, following seventy nine cases and nineteen deaths in the UK uh, following the AstraZeneca vaccination. This is of CVST. Um, we've had loads of people calling with with headaches all of a sudden, um, mm. and uh, seeing that that seems to be the case across the country. Mm. Um, how have you been handling that, Tom? What's what's been the approach? Um, well, not, it's been really hard because we. Firstly, six months ago, I guess if you'd have asked me for a differential of headache, you know, I I, I would not <laughs> have included this. This wouldn't have been top on your list. No, no, no. Surprisingly, uh, so yeah, I guess it's a steep learning curve in in terms of, you know, we need to understand quickly more about this problem, how it presents, uh, and how we can rule it out. 
So, so that's been really hard. It, I mean, it must be really challenging because even though the vaccines are highly efficacious and safe by, you know, the data that exists, there are, you know, there's always the possibility of side effects um, mm. after a medicine, after a vaccine. And I think it must be really hard to kind of get it right between a potentially serious but rare um, adverse mm. effect, a side mm-hmm. effect which is difficult for the patient or or frustrating or uncomfortable, but which is not life-threatening, and the fact that common things are still common. You know, um, like people yeah. still are going to have headaches for all the kinds of reasons that they're going to have headaches, not, not to mention all the COVID-19 non-vaccine side effect-related headaches, you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's really and, hard. Yeah. yeah. And then balancing all of that against, you know, the the risks of COVID, like, you know, um, and, you know, the people who are concerned about getting a vaccination or, or wanting to be offered, um, wanting to wait to be offered a, a different vaccination, trying to kind of navigate those conversations mm. about, well, weighing up your, your risk of COVID and what that would mm-hmm. mean, you know, for mm. you. That's, you know, I guess mm-hmm. as GPs, these are all the, all the conversations that we're having at the moment. And mm-hmm. it's really hard. Mm. I think I keep thinking, trying to, trying really hard to get in my mind this, the scale of the risk. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's really hard, isn't it? Like, But I think we've, we've vaccinated about 10,000 people in our PCN. Um, and so if it's a risk of about one in 100,000, you know, we've been, feels like we've been vaccinating nonstop for a long time. We've only got to 10,000. So we're still only a tenth of the way to where we might expect a single a case, case of this. Yeah. Um, and yet, you know, the last this week we're getting several calls a day, people with headaches after vaccination. So um, clearly it is a it's sort of needle in a haystack job. Um, but uh, it still there's that pressure to, ref, you know, refer. And I think you were seeing a lot of, spike in A&E referrals from GPs and probably mm-hmm. directly to or via 111. And so what kinds of questions are you asking to get at whether this is a possibility? Um, the only thing I remember from med school is like visual field defects, which are really hard to measure remotely, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, it probably takes as well to our, our interview on this, because um, about a week ago, I spoke to a neurologist uh, for, for this podcast, um, not anticipating that it'd be quite such a big news story this week. Um, and so actually, I've been able to, to put into practice some of the things that she, she told me about. So my name's Heather Angus LePan. I'm a consultant neurologist. I work at the Royal Free Hospital and Institute of Neurology, and I've trained in, in Australia and in, in the UK. Well, thank you for joining me today. And yeah, I really want to ask you some questions about headaches after vaccination, because um, patients in England have been asked to contact their GP if they have a headache for more than four days after having the, the vaccine. Um, so... I guess the first thing I want to know is about the cerebral venous sinus thrombosis. Not something I think I'd ever come across in my career, and I guess I wouldn't expect to, because I know it's very, very rare, but but what is it? Can you just give me a bit yeah. of a background to it? Yeah, so I think if we think of the brain as being a closed system, um, to maintain homeostasis of the of the pressures and, and fluid levels, 
uh, the, the venous system has to take blood away as more blood is being pumped in. So if you have a clot in one of the main components of that, which is the sagittal sinus thrombosis, which which is the, the biggest uh, the biggest one, um, and then eventually draining back into the um, internal jugular vein. If you have a clot in that system, then very rapidly you can get a massive buildup in, in pressure in the brain. And that's what causes the symptoms, which can either be focal symptoms or generalized system uh, symptoms such as um, a reduced loss, a reduced level of consciousness, encephalopathy. So that's that's how it, it happens. Okay. And do we know um, why, it, why it, it happens? Because there's all this focus on that there might be this link. But um, I mean, do we know why it happens for those people where it's nothing to do with a vaccine? And I guess then if there was a link with the vaccine, is there any kind of reason why there should be a link? Yes. So it happens uh, usually in, in the most common setting. Um, probably we see it in is in people after pregnancy and in the first period after pregnancy when uh, they're, 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 they're more vulnerable to clotting in general. And it happens really in the situation which causes, uh, causes clotting. Any, anything which increases the risk of clotting, uh, so the oral contraceptive pill, um, uh, dehydration, infection of any sort, uh, it can, can cause in, an inflammatory cascade which increases the risk of clotting. By far the most clot, common clots we see, of course, are deep venous thrombosis um, in the legs or pulmonary emboli. But this is, this is a rarer form of, of the same process. And so, of right. course, infection such as COVID is, is a predisposing factor and has been one of the things that, that uh, a lot of the workers focused on, this, this increased risk of, of clotting. So it's just another part of the, the sort of venous system that's more vulnerable to clots for, for one reason or another, like like in the, the deep veins of the leg. Yes. But do we know like what, why? Like, do... uh, I think I think it is it is just part of that same process. If also sometimes yeah. if there's some sort of local disturbance or trauma, uh, you can also get you can get a tendency to clot in in that area. Um, of course, the most common vascular complications uh, that we see in COVID and after COVID. Are, are if, if neurologically are an increased level of, of strokes and they're usually arterial um, but this is this is just a, a this can cause another form of, of stroke um, and with a different mechanism so um, so yeah I want to go back to, to that situation where yeah we, we might be getting calls from patients concerned that they have got this headache and of course they're being told to, to call their GP um, but I, I currently feel a little bit uh, uncertain what exactly I'm supposed to do there apart from just my usual headache assessment uh, red flags can you talk us through what what might be well what, what you would say if you were on the phone to that patient yes I think this is going to be um, something Tom for, for both you and I and you know both in in primary and secondary care that is going to be um, an issue that we have to carefully evaluate and the, the red flags that we use for headache um, assessment really do apply very much here and they're going to be really going to cover the main scenarios. And um, I break it down, if we're thinking of this particular um, scenario of, uh, of, of cerebral vein thrombosis, you can have um, a, a headache due to raised intracranial pressure. So as well as a headache, you'll have visual symptoms, um, you'll have, um, you'll have uh, swelling of the optic disc and, and and it'll be a progressive worsening headache. You can have focal seizures. Um, you can have focal deficits such as speech disturbance or weakness. And you can have um, progressive encephalopathy or 
reduced level of consciousness, simply drowsiness. So I think those are the main sort of symptoms you'll see. But all of those we really cover in our in our red flags, um, which um, and 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 it's really very helpful that most of those can be assessed even over the phone initially. So we can we can pick out people who we need to see. And putting this into context, it's incredibly common, as you've seen and I've seen um, after vaccines, for people to have a bit of a fever and headache. And in fact, we think that probably those are part of the immune response to it and probably indicate that it's doing its job. So we have to, we're going to have to yeah. untangle that from, you know, from those ordinary events. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yes. to say you know, expect to get a headache, and then, oh, but but call us if it's still there after four days. Um, just in terms of those visual symptoms, I guess we're not talking about a, a, like like an aura, sort of visual visual aura. Is that sort of diplopia? Uh, you know, hemianopia, that, yes. that, those sorts of things. That's, or, that's a really good point. Obviously, if you have migraine with aura, you also have focal, you know, neurological um, problems during the during the aura. So. The visual symptoms um, of, of the migraine aura, that's, that's zigzaggy lines on one side that comes on slowly and goes away slowly, that wouldn't be typical. It would more be blurred vision. Um, if you have high pressure, then generally you get um, blurring of the vision when you bend over. Um, and, and so you, you get that sort of loss of vision if you bend over and stand up again. Um, and you can you can get simply um, a fixed blurred vision or you, you could get double vision. So the visual manifestations, there are quite a range of them, and some of them do actually overlap with migraine, which makes that all very much more tricky, I think. Uh, thank you. That is really helpful because, um, yeah, often when you say, have you had any visual symptoms? And then you you get <laughs> you get a, a, an answer that is yes, but we need to, to be able to sift out between the those you might get from migraine to um, to something like, like this, which... Um, it's really important, isn't it? Um, yeah, obviously, uh, people do have reactions to vac to vaccines, and I don't think I think we have to be quite open about them. Uh, I know that the, the message very clearly is that the um, the benefit of, vac of vaccination so far outweighs any potential side effects. But if 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 we educate uh, people about what to expect, I think that's going to help actually to reduce rather than increase anxiety. Um, and I tell people uh, that the, the suggestions I have is to make sure you're really well hydrated before you have the vaccination because and around and, and immediately afterwards, because dehydration increases the risk of any complications, including um, the cerebral venous thrombosis. Um, if they're if they're vulnerable um, to getting headaches, then it's worth taking uh, paracetamol or aspirin around again around the time of the vaccination. Um, it's not proven, but it, it probably does help to reduce those um, side effects. And um, on a tangent, I see a lot of people with epilepsy and it's not infrequent for them to have more seizures around the time of the vaccination. So they may take a rescue medication and be very aware of that around the time. Um, so that's not re not related to headache, but a, but a different sort of scenario we see. So I think more the more we educate um, and explain to people, don't expect to feel 100% after the vaccine. You're not going to be able to do your usual 10-kilometre jog. Uh, don't try to do that and just look after yourself, keep hydrated, rest a bit. Um, then it will help people to accept um, that, that, that they have some symptoms and, and you know, reduce the, the, the stress because for the public um, – they, they listen to the news that, you know, it's a very rare thing. But if it happens to you, um, then it's not rare for you, is it? 
And that's yeah, that's why people are obviously concerned. Um, the last vaccination session I did, I, several people asked me if they could have a drink that day. I don't know if there's something going around on social media about alcohol <laughs> and, and the vaccine. Um, I think to most I said, yeah, that's fine. But, what, uh, but presumably that the, uh, one of the effects of alcohol, of course, is, is to have a slight dehydrating effect. So I guess that might not be such a good idea to have a glass of wine the evening of your vaccine when you're celebrating well, I think have the glass of wine, but have a have a nice big jug of water as well. So you so you have some water as well. <laughs> okay, thank you. I'll modify my advice to 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 include the water as well. Thank you. <laughs> there you go. You won't get that. These pearls of wisdom anywhere else than, than deep breath in. <laughs> a jug of water with your wine after your vaccine. <laughs> um, so, is that any clearer? <laughs> yeah, I thought that was helpful. And I think um, it, it's good to get some specifics, isn't it? About um, that, you know, if you want to probe a bit deeper, if, say, if someone does call you with a headache and some visual symptoms well what kind of visual symptoms and and to have a bit more kind of um mm. yeah of, of a framework of, of what kind of things you might expect so that was very helpful i'd be so curious to get a better understanding of some of the positive predictive values of some of the symptoms that she was yeah. talking about um you know so i handle the rational testing series which is look focused on, you know, how to approach a clinical problem or a clinical symptom with the appropriate amount of testing and really trying to discern who needs further evaluation and with which test. And one of the things we talk about a lot is, okay, what are the symptoms? What are the signs that really matter and which which warrants further investigation? And I'm so curious, like, mm. what which of these symptoms are most highly correlated? Um with mm. actually having the uh, condition. Yeah, yeah, exa exactly. And that's what's been troubling me. So following what some some other GP colleagues are talking about um, with doing testing for, for people with a headache. Um, so there's the, um, I've got them here, the expert hematology panel. Mm. Well, there's, there's some guidance going around. I think aimed very much at secondary care um, where you, yeah, where you suspect there is a thrombus and to do a full blood count because it seems that I think all cases have been associated with, with low platelets mm. um, and they're also suggesting D-dimers. Um, but I see that GPs are going, oh, look, let's, okay, well, let's do full blood count and D-dimers. Um, but this is a completely different setting. You know, this is an completely different group of patients mm -hmm. where that, that pre-test probability, which we keep going on about on this <laughs> podcast, is going to be just so low that um, I, I worry about where that's all going to lead. Plus, I mean, we should say it's still incredibly rare, like yeah. for for the number of, um, yeah, it, it's so rare that it, it would be hard to kind of um, come up with a meaningful kind of um, value yeah. or test that I think would, would be informative. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I just feel that surely a really good history is is going to perform a lot better than than any test. But um, 
But, you know, I'm, I'm guilty of this all the time. It's the test is the more tempting option, isn't it? Um, well, yeah. And I mean, I think we all carry that sort of, you know, that sort of slight burden of feeling responsible, you know, was worrying about mm. missing something. But I, I mean, just to put this in context again, it is incredibly, incredibly rare still. And um, yeah, and I, I think the the evidence isn't conclusive yet, is it? It's still just an association. Um, although I, 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 it is firming up, I guess, and people are taking action on it. But um, I've seen a lot of... Um, women uh, on social media kind of saying that you know uh, sort of responses like well you know GPs are very happy to prescribe people the pill and not have these kind of detailed discussions mm -hmm. about risks of clots and that kind of thing mm -hmm. and so but now, now we're being scared into you know not having not having this vaccine and so that kind of I don't know that perspective I think is really interesting that mm -hmm. you know here's a medication that we prescribe like a lot <laughs> and you know without you know often we think of that as being something very relatively safe um, and mm. then also considering you know that pregnancy is carry also carries its own risk of um clots as well um yeah i just sorry I, I don't know where i'm going with this other than to say that mm. you know a, a lot of interventions that um are available and a lot of sort of normal life conditions like pregnancy are associated with you know things happening and complications mm. and keeping that perspective I think is really important um so yeah. that we can I don't know give patients the full picture yeah yeah absolutely um do you think there's some nocebo effect as well this is one of my favorite topics is you know we hadn't heard anyone pretty much for three months with any concerns about side effects and then you know, huge kind of, you know, news stories and, and concern. And suddenly, you know, we're seeing people who are saying, oh, I've had a headache for weeks or, um, which could be, simply be explained by side effects. But um, I wonder if there's, a, there's an element of amplification of symptoms because of the anxiety or the expectation that the, that the, the vaccine is going to cause these symptoms. What What is a nocebo effect? <laughs> right. Uh yeah, so the opposite of the placebo effect. So um, uh, if you are expecting a a, a negative effect of a oh, I see, of a I see. Drug, okay. then you're more likely okay. to experience it. I see. I don't know if nocebo effect is the right, how I would describe it. I think there is a legitimate kind of worry <laughs> that, um, you know, something that's been developed very quickly, you know, uh, this is what I hear from patients that you know, as 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 big as the appetite as there is to to be vaccinated and to kind of go go back to life as normal. I think it's people... interesting. I mean, <laughs> interesting. You, I'm, I don't mean nocebo effect as a as a way of diminishing those symptoms, but but that it's a very real thing that I think we don't think enough about. Maybe, yeah. Um, I think there is something to be said for kind of having something in our heads in terms of how we structure a differential or approach a problem. It's kind of like when you see a case of something relatively rare or if you hear about something happening, it it subtly shifts like how you approach the next problem or the next presentation like that. You know, yeah. I, I have to, I have to think it's, I mean, cause you know, we, we know it's rare. 
And yeah, I mean, I think it's legitimate for people to feel anxious or feel concerned when they read the news reports and they're just doing what they feel is responsible for their health. Hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I think, you know, as you as you said, it, if someone, you know, a few months ago had called you up and said, hey, I've got a headache after the vaccine, your approach would have been really different and you can't help but hmm. accommodate new information into your thought process yeah and also tom you might not have been get they might they might have had the headache but just not called you yeah yeah no i'm not um <laughs> i'm not trying to argue that this <laughs> Sorry, suddenly people are, are developing headaches that, that weren't getting them before but um that that yeah I, i'm tr- trying to understand is this purely that the headaches were there but you know people just sort of say oh it was fine uh or Actually, the headaches that were there ha- ha- are more noticeable now, and you know that we, yeah. when when you notice something and you start yeah. to link it with the serious diagnosis, yeah. this is kind of like an everyday thing we see as GPs mm. that um, that you you can't the symptom won't go away almost until you know it's not cancer or thrombosis. Or, yeah, um, uh, and I suppose yeah, with, with the the calls we're getting, it is it is often people who who have been having the headaches that. Um, did think it was just a side effect or a, just a regular headache, but um, weren't too concerned. Now, now very worried about about this, and that's understandable and, and legitimate. Um, and I suppose this this is something we're seeing in in those people who are more concerned about having the vaccine in the first place, having the legitimate fears that that um, I think we have a role to play or a big role to play in, in listening to those, don't we? Um, so I guess that maybe moves us on a little bit to the, sec- the also second half of this episode, which is about um, well, I guess what we don't call vaccine hesitancy because we, we don't we don't really like that term so much, but um, the disparities in vaccine uptake or vaccine availability mm. to, to different um, ethnic minority groups, um, and the Sewell report. I mean, can, can somebody offer us a, a bit of an intro to the to the Sewell report? For- well, yeah, I mean, last year, the government um, uh, set up this commission on race and ethnic disparities, they say, to look at the state of race relations in the UK and to kind of examine some of these like widely publicised disparities that we were looking at um, last year, things like COVID outcomes. Um, and the the report itself, it looks, it's sort of spanning many, many different aspects of kind of society and life. So sort of education, um, criminal justice system and healthcare as well. Um, and I think one of the, one of the state, one of the kind of headline conclusions was about um, institutional racism. And they say that, you know, we've, we've come on a lot and they basically conclude that institutional racism isn't a problem anymore. Um, and that definitely got, yeah, a lot of the headlines. Um, my take from reading the report is there is some some interesting and sort of worthwhile stuff in there, but they have really kind of the sort of credibility for the report. You You have to question when, you know, with headlines like that, with those kind of key findings. And also I think there there is a kind of lack of, rigor that we might expect in a report such as this. So some of the expertise that they've called on, some of the things that they cite in the report about um, healthcare, they then kind of contradict in their conclusions. Um, and and there's, I mean, my, 
my feeling was, and I'm, I'm obviously not an expert uh, or an academic who studied this in any great detail, but they kind of, um, I, th- I think where um, I found it quite challenging was they sort of say, well, a lot of um, disparities that you see can be explained by things like um, poverty and housing and education. And I think that's quite a superficial take. I think most of the thinking is a bit more sophisticated now that you sort of go beyond that and look at um, what Michael Marmot would call the causes of the causes and the causes of the causes of the causes, um, which, you know, racism, most people would argue, is is one of the key ones. So um, so there's been a big furore here in the UK about this report that essentially the government is marking its own homework. It um, set up it set up this commission and called, you know, I think from the outset when they kind of announced who was chairing, that some of the people involved were people who had highly publicised views already about institutional racism. Um, And then the context obviously is a sort of landscape where there have been these big disparities, not just in COVID outcomes, Mm. but then sort of we've had here the Windrush scandal, lots of stuff about sort of immigration and criminal justice that you know, still very controversial. And I, so I think this report has just been really disappointing, I think, for a lot of people. Um, not to say there isn't some sort of useful evidence and thinking in the report, but just it's massively undermined, you know, any good that's in there by by these headlines. There was, um, there was a bit on GP services in the report, if, you, if you're interested in, in, in hearing that. Obviously yeah. That, that won't really have made the headlines. <laughs> um, um, it might be worth... Uh, pulling that out here. Um, so they look, again, quite superficially, I guess, um, but at satisfaction with GP services, um, according to Ethnic Group. Um, should I just read out a few of the bits that I thought were, yeah. were, were interesting? Um, it says, while there are a few differences between white British, black African and black Caribbean patients, the percentage of Asian patients reporting positive experiences of general practice services tends to be lower for example, 85.5% of white British patients compared with 86.3% of black African patients and 72.6% of those from the Bangladeshi ethnic group. Um, uh, yeah, and then out of hours services, there's there's a similar um, dis- well, disparity, 59%, 59% of satisfaction rate in Bangladeshi ethnic group versus a 69% in white British patients. Um, so that's uh, well that's interesting um, but it doesn't really go beyond that and um, which was something I just reflected on after reading it so what do you make of that like what do you kind of conclude or take away well that, I mean I think I'd really like to, to look into that in more detail and perhaps we can do that for, for another episode and, and speak to somebody who, who is an expert on that mm. um, uh, I think one problem in, in general practice is about recruitment and retention of GPs and, um, you know, that being less of a problem in, in your sort of white middle class communities. Um, and mm. I, I wonder if that, that seems an obvious thing that might correlate with satisfaction rates amongst practices. But I'm sure there's a lot more to it than that. Yeah, it's so interesting. Um, I also, I mean, I also find myself wanting more and I'm sure there there are experts and academics and people doing research and qualitative work or whatever it is um, to understand more of um, what's behind some of these figures. I mean, one of the things that um, when we published our special edition on racism in medicine last year, 
Um, we published an analysis which was essentially looking at it was by um, Sarah Solway and James Nasru and, and other people who are experts and have done a lot of research into this and they, they were saying that our, our data gathering and evidence gathering and research into health disparities by ethnicity is uh, quite patchy and there are sort of huge areas that we are not systematically collecting data on and so one of the things that I think it becomes very easy to sort of say well just because we don't have that evidence it doesn't it means there's not a problem and um, racism in medicine edition called for um, a health observatory a race health observatory which has now been set up and I think it would be really interesting to see what what work comes out of that observatory, you know, it's specifically designed to sort of look at research, make policy recommendations. And I'd be really interested to know kind of what they do on the back of this and, and some of that information about things like GP satisfaction and recruitment and retention. So where do we go from here? Hmm. That is so interesting. And, you know, I, I, I saw Michael Marmot wrote about the Sewell report and um, you know, pointed out that, you know, one one thing that it does is draw attention to the problem of the term um, BAME and even describing, you know, broad chunks of the population, like, for example, Asian, right? Like, there's so much diversity in Asian, like, what does that even mean, right? Mm. <laughs> so many different cultures and people and religions and beliefs and and practices and all of these things. And so um, hopefully this, um, this race and health observatory will kind of think about a more useful way to understand people's experiences and to kind of get around the problems of grouping people together like that yeah yeah and and that was that that's one sort of well-described problem is that it is that that's also inconsistent and um yeah and this problem of lumping together kind of very heterogeneous groups of people as well uh, i think that's been a problem with the, the narrative maybe or the the how people have been talking about vaccination uptake um as though it's just like one homogeneous group of people you know how do we help the BAME community to to have more vaccine just seems a really uh problematic way of thinking about it um uh and well Jenny I know you the interview we're, we're gonna hear in a moment is talking about you know what practical steps can be taken to um maybe to reach out to certain different groups of people to um uh to offer vaccination so I had the privilege to speak to Whitney Robinson. She's a social epidemiologist at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. And a lot of the things that she and I touched on in our conversation um, seem relevant to this report and also kind of what this means in terms of vaccine uptake and access to the vaccine. And that's coming up after this message from our sponsor. When you're a GP, you're not just 9 to 5. Being a GP is part of who you are, whatever the time of day. So when it comes to your indemnity, you need someone you can turn to at any time. Medical protection is always here for you, 
with expert medico-legal advice, including 24-7 in an emergency. We don't just cover patient claims. We're also here to provide support and legal representation when it comes to GMC inquiries, coroner inquests, criminal investigations and more. Online, we offer risk prevention courses and webinars to keep you up to date with current news, risks and legislation. We also go the extra mile when it comes to your well-being. With a free counselling service and e-care app, we're helping members take positive steps to better mental and physical health. It's the protection your career deserves, all in one place. And if you're about to qualify or have recently qualified, we can help you take the next step in your career with savings on membership for newly qualified GPs. To find out more, visit medicalprotection.org. Now back to my conversation with Whitney Robinson. Hello, I'm Whitney Robinson. I'm an associate professor of epidemiology at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill in the Gilling School of Global Public Health. So I'd love to hear more about how it's going in the UK. We are very jealous of your universal health care system and having an actual list of people to vaccinate. In the US, we are flying not completely blind, but with very little universal information about who we're targeting. In the U.S., we don't have great information about um, a lot of markers of disadvantage. We have some location information, where do people live, and we have um, information about race, ethnicity, and age. Those are kind of the things that we are able to track in a decent manner, although it's still not perfect. Um, And so I think at the beginning, we saw lower levels of vaccination among racial ethnic minority groups, And um, now that we are moving into younger ages, people are worried about uptake among younger people. Uh, We have seen more skepticism from those on the political right, which has been really interesting. Um, We just had a change in administration. And so over and over again, our response to COVID has been politicized and that's very difficult. So we have a lot of complex kind of layers um, that complicate understanding vaccine uptake. So one positive thing that we've seen is I personally am Black American and have been doing outreach to Black communities and a lot of other people have been doing Black outreach to Black communities as well. You know, we do have a history of Black communities being kind of abused in research and definitely not having our health prioritized and people are skeptical. People are skeptical about potentially taking something that's experimental that might have long-term consequences and they're skeptical about trusting the government, honestly. Um, you know, to say here, take this, <laughs> you know, and that takes some trust. And I think that's understandable. And so a lot of people have been doing public communication to talk about it and also advertising, you know, when they're vaccinated. So healthcare workers went first in the United States and they would take pictures and selfies and look, I'm seeing I'm vaccinated. And that's intentional because some people say, I don't want to be the first. I don't want to be a guinea pig. I want to see how it does with other people first. And I think that has had an impact. I think just time and people advertising when they've been vaccinated and people seeing that those people are doing well in and of itself increases public trust. I think a really important thing is the implementation. Um, 
of how vaccination is carried out. I think we've thought some about the best setting for vaccination. And because of the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines needing to be stored in cold settings, a lot of times um, we prioritized big hospital systems as the place to distribute vaccine. But, you know, in the United States, we have a capitalist medical care system and a lot of people associate big healthcare systems with, I got a surprise bill or I was treated badly. And that is not necessarily the best place for a vaccination campaign, which is a public health strategy. I think my state in North Carolina is experimenting with having um, vaccination events, first of all, on weekends, um, a lot of the hospital events are on weekdays when people are working during the work day. Like who can take off um, then? And it reinforces people's ideas that maybe this isn't for me. You know, if they're offering it at times when I just can't come. Um, and so I've been to a vaccination event that was at our local community center. And we had people who work at the community organization who know all of the older people in the neighborhood and who can call them and say, oh, we're having this event and who can answer the question and who are already people that are trusted in the community. And I think people who have earned that trust because these people have been delivering meals throughout the past year, checking in on people. And I think when you know that somebody has been there for you, during a really hard time over the course of the year, when that person says to you, I'm offering you this chance to get vaccinated, I think it's a good idea that will help you. You believe them. But if somebody you've never met who's a bureaucrat or who represents a healthcare system that's treated you badly says it, you might not believe them. And then you might look to your network on Facebook or WhatsApp or somewhere else where you do have connections. So the messenger makes a difference. The setting makes a difference. And having the experience of others in your community who've experienced something makes a difference. And I think some of those are strong anecdotes to misinformation, but misinformation is also very pernicious and preys on real fears and also trust networks. Yeah, I mean, thank you. I think that's such, I mean, so many good points there and really important considerations in how we think about implementation and kind of what it means to actually reach out to people, build trust, be there for them in a way that's less about persuasion and more about like genuine care and assistance, right? Yes. So I wonder if you can um, give us some advice, you know, what, <laughs> what can primary care doctors do to assist people in getting access to the vaccine in a way that feels good and safe for them. I mean, one thing I've been jealous about in the UK context is the fact that GPs do have these pre-existing relationships with many people and they can call from their office and a lot of people will have a positive association. And so to the extent that you build on that positive association is wonderful. Uh, I think you know, accessible hours and locations um, is really helpful. Um, I think that the UK has used an age-based strategy, um, which seems like it's working well there. But I think, you know, sometimes I've advocated for place-based and family-based strategies. To be able to vaccinate a whole family together, I actually think it can be efficient and trust-building. Um, as I said, as you get to younger populations, a lot of younger people in the U.S. are expressing, you know, I know I might have these bad side effects and I actually also know that I'm not at risk 
at high risk for mortality, what should motivate me to get vaccinated? And I think for a lot of people, the idea of protecting their family, protecting people they love, because most people are in kin networks with older people who could be at risk, or you know, even children, for instance, and um, to be able to talk to them, not as just personal protection for you, but in your larger context, being able to protect people who might not be able to get vaccinated or um, just in your larger network. Um, I've heard people who do this work talk about informational interviewing. I totally agree with you that trying to bully somebody into vaccination is not the best strategy. Um, and so what a lot of people will ask, you know, are you thinking about this and what are your considerations? And to the extent that as a GP can just provide information, because sometimes people just want information and don't know who to turn to, um, but also address concerns that a person might have. Maybe somebody is motivated by wanting to protect loved ones or children, or maybe somebody is more motivated by just a return to communal life, or maybe somebody's motivated by not having to worry about getting sick. Um, and so trying to understand people's motivations and meet them where they are. And that takes time. And I think a lot of GPs probably don't have a lot of time. I think so many people are tired, you know, and overworked and um, are under so many, so much stress. And so to the extent that we can all take time to talk with people and be responsive to them, I think is very helpful. It's interesting as well, thinking about kind of this concept of social good. And I think a lot of us have thought about vaccines and other um, strategies, lockdown, whatever, as a way to quote unquote, get back to normal. And then I hear a lot of people on the left and more progressive people and you know myself thinking, but the normal that we had was not great because yeah. COVID-19 has really showed us so many of the inequalities and equities in people's lives that this mm -hmm. virus could have such a devastating impact for some communities and not as much on others really shows that things maybe weren't that great beforehand. Yeah. So I wonder if you could comment a little bit on that and also this idea of vaccine passports, other schemes that might coerce people into vaccination as a way to quote unquote, get back to normal. Like at what point are we really blurring the lines and missing the line, going over the line between public health and this idea of protection and actually getting into a coercion? Yeah, I think it's such a good point. And to the extent that the experience of COVID-19 leads our nations into thinking more about health and well-being and how we ensure that everybody has an opportunity for well-being, I think that could be really powerful. And I think there is this sense of expediency. Let's just get everybody vaccinated and then, you know, we can get back to normal. I think that one thing I think is that that is some wishful thinking. I think we've endured a great trauma and I think we don't even realize the extent of that trauma. Um, so I think probably GPs will be dealing with the after effects for COVID for years 
in years. And that's probably not what you need to hear because we just want to like get out of this immediate crisis. And I do think it is very important to get out of this immediate crisis, but I think it's just one step to longer term healing. So that's just one thing. Absent everything else, absent really addressing all the inequities to really start thinking about that the end of the pandemic or the end of the national outbreak is just a step along a path of healing. Um, And that hopefully we can take what's been revealed to us, what we now know about the kind of jobs people have, the kind of um, financial cushion people have, the kind of ability people have to protect themselves at the expense of others, um, to use that to think about having a fairer system, because otherwise these things just replicate themselves. I'm a social epidemiologist. And early on, you know, when people were saying, this is the great equalizer and this is going to affect everybody, people in my field knew that that wasn't true, just based on how the disease spreads, that as people figure out how to protect themselves, the people with means and wealth um, and advantage will protect themselves. And that is largely what happened. And that even within hospital systems, um, we've seen disparities where a lot of the low-wage workers were the most likely to get infected and die. Um, and I think even people in healthcare systems really need to interrogate how inequality is part of our work setting as well, not just something out there, but something in here. And to the extent that we think we can end things just by coercing other people into taking the vaccine and saying it's over, I think that is also um, just wishful thinking. Oh, thank you, Jenny. That was such an interesting, insightful interview, wasn't it? Um, and there's more to it than, than that as well, isn't there? I think we, we might be able to put the full interview on the podcast channel. Yeah, it was a really great conversation. Whitney is um, so smart and so thoughtful. And yeah, I think everyone would just enjoy listening to some of her insights. Hmm. I did think, um, I think I misheard her at one point towards the end there. I thought she said people with memes would, would do better. Uh, I just think, yeah, pe- people with memes have had a good pandemic, haven't they? <laughs> Maybe I need some memes. Well, it's funny that you say that because... There was, there was an article published um, in in Social Media and Society in December 2020. Oh right, is that are you, are you executive editor of that? No, far from it. But it was. <laughs> but the article is by April Williams, and the title is "Black Memes Matter: Hashtag Living While Black with Becky and Karen," and it's about the importance of Karen as a meme. And the value of memes that encapsulate experience of white supremacy and um, what that means for black people and how that's been a source of power. Um, it's so fascinating. Mm. That is fascinating. Uh, I, I watched the, uh, the documentary about that, that frog. That, oh, I've called? seen that documentary. Pepe. Pepe, yeah. That's oh. an incredible that film. poor creator who's so depressed by the fact that the far right or alt-right have uh, appropriated his uh, yeah. little sad frog character. Anyway, um, moving on from, from memes. Um, <laughs> Maybe we need an episode about memes. <laughs> that would be great. Uh, 
Uh, lots to, to pick up. I thought it was a really interesting idea to to offer vaccination to a family or household. Mm. Uh, we we do get a lot of people requests in our practice. People asking, you know, I've had the vaccine, but you know, my partner or whatever is going to work every day, and and you know, living with somebody who's extremely vulnerable, would it not make sense just to to do that? And we're currently having to say no, but it's feel a bit illogical. Yeah, I, yeah, I thought that was a great idea. Um... And it's so interesting kind of hearing that interview after we've just been talking about the Sewell report and Tom, mm. the data you were sharing about um, trust in GP or uh, GP satisfaction, mm. because um, one of the things when we spoke to Kevin Fenton a few weeks ago about, you know, and he, he's um, public health uh, director in London um, and responsible for the vaccine programme here. And, and he was saying how, you know, GPs are so crucial to that relationship building, that trust building that you need to, you know, um, talk to people about the vaccine and deliver the vaccine. And actually that data is so interesting that actually that there mm. we need to go. I think I, I often just think that, oh yeah, well, GPs, you know, we have great relationships with our patients. We're so well-placed uh, and we are, but you know that there is a, a worry that actually our relationships with people might be better in certain communities and if we really follow that route to to try and improve uptake we will be exacerbating certain inequities that exist mm, mm. so really fascinating and mm. um, we do de- do to me it seems to need other strategies like offering you know more flexible ways like vaccinating families um i think that's a really great idea I think this point about that Whitney made about shifting to a post-pandemic world that is more focused on well-being and a fairer system is in some ways what the Sewell report was intended to get the UK toward. And yet perhaps by kind of failing to name racism as you know, systemic, structural, a process that's ongoing, perhaps not going far enough there. You know, it's, I don't know, kind of really a missed opportunity. And there, and I wanted to um, share this, uh, this opinion piece in the Washington Post, which is relevant for all of us. Um, which is the healthcare industry doesn't want to talk about this single word. And it's written by Ron Wyatt, who's the co-chair of the Institute for Healthcare Improvements Equity Advisory Group. And it basically makes the point that in academic publishing, whether we're looking at research, whether we're looking at other things, um, journals, newspapers, and other outlets have been hesitant to actually name racism when they're talking about disparities that they've researched and documented. Um, The opinion piece goes on to um, discuss the podcast that uh, JAMA put out, which initially claimed that, you know, structural racism (laughs) doesn't exist. It was a huge disaster. It's really interesting, like, if we can't name racism as a problem, as a as the public health crisis that it is, and if we can't even begin to talk about it, and if we're just kind of dancing around it and using kind of euphemisms or different words or proxies, 
it it makes me feel like we're not going to get to a place where we can change it. Oh, 100%. I mean, you know, there needs to be a serious kind of reckoning with all of that. You have to acknowledge that something exists and call it what it is before you can begin to deal with it. And that was what was so disappointing, um, I think, about the Saw report. So there's so much more to, to cover and to consider on this subject, uh, uh, as well as um, actually for our, the first thing we were talking about, uh, headaches after vaccines, and um, I'm sure we will come back to both in, in future episodes. Uh, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Uh, please subscribe uh, wherever you get your podcasts from and send us uh, a review or rating or email us, uh, practice at bmj.com. We'd love to hear from some of our listeners. Uh, we'll be back in a couple of weeks' time with another episode. Uh, my thanks to Heather and to Whitney. And thank you, of course, to, to Jenny. See you next time. Thanks. See you next time. And love joints. Bye. Thank you. Bye. And it's goodbye from me too. <laughs> <laughs>